Hi, folks. I know what you're thinking. Hold on. It's a Friday. Well, this is Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be throwing extra bonus episodes your way because, well, because we can. Um, And because there is so much great conversation to be had around film, music and TV. So that, my friends, is what we are going to do. And that's what today's episode is all about. You might remember back a couple of months ago, I was lucky enough to sit down with Eddie Hamilton and Cecile Turnesac, music editor and editor, talking about um, the latest Mission Impossible film. And within that conversation, we talked quite a bit about Top Gun Maverick that they both worked on. And so, if you remember, if you listened to the episode, if you didn't, go back and listen. I said to them, it would be great to do a Top Gun special. And so we have. Uh, for no other reason than we wanted to have the conversation. The film is available everywhere to stream right now. In fact, I think a few cinemas are putting it back in as well. And the conversation is just so interesting because we're taking a deep dive into the music of Top Gun uh, in this bonus episode of Soundtracking because Eddie and Cecile discuss in such detail their work on the film. Needless to say, this conversation features plenty of spoilers but it's not one you'll want to listen to unless you've seen the film. So wonderfully granular is the detail that they go into. They give us the stories behind the songs, the score, the sound design, and also serve up a rather lovely Easter egg for you to look out for next time you watch the film. The score was a collaborative effort from Harold Faltermeyer, Lady Gaga, Lorne Balfe and Hans Zimmer. And so we'll begin with their cue, Penny Returns. this i love that we've managed to make this happen this is so great thank you so much it's a pleasure edith i've got to say i've watched the new top gun maverick i would say it's a film i've watched the most in terms of kind of you know most recent films that thing my 10 year old oh my gosh he's obsessed with this film so much and so it's so lovely we just watch it rooster he's just in love with rooster and here's a little sort of fact that, you know, slightly off kilter, but he also plays drums, my 10-year-old. So I was like, nice. oh, my God, wait till I show you Miles. I couldn't yeah. obviously show him the whole of Whiplash because for a 10-year-old, it's too much. But I showed him the end scene. And so then it resulted in him uh, going up to his little drum room after school most days just with that scene and trying to play along. Oh, was- my goodness me. The cutest oh, thing and the most Good for you, terrifying Edith. thing Good ever. Good for you. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> fabulous. What do you think he responds so much about the film? Because it obviously speaks to a lot of generations. And I'm quite mm. curious, from your opinion, as a, as a mum of a 10-year-old, mm. 
what is it about the film that speaks directly to him? For Spike particularly, I think there's a number of things. So music's a big thing for him, clearly. And so he, you know, straight away, you're kind of like, you're almost sort of, takeoff is almost as well as being on, you know, on these incredible um, machines. You're also there with the music, you know, kind of immediately. But I also think Tom, in terms of that character, is so flawed and real. So he kind of like can see... You know, even as a 10-year-old, you can see sort of what's going on. But I think in terms of, for him, it's Rooster. It's that kind of entry point into a young person who's driven by determination, who gets it wrong sometimes. There's quite a lot going on without him even really, we've never really talked about that, you know, why he, why it appeals to him. But I think on kind of surface level, he wants to be in the RAF. He's kind of, he's like... I yeah. want to fly planes, mom, and these are the best planes, and these are the best way you fly planes. Yes, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's wonderful that it it talks to generations, so many generations. This film, it's great. Yeah, and and listen, I think for the the incredible work that you guys have done on this as well, there are so many levels on this film as well. And one of the things that I think is so beautiful about this film that it doesn't shy away from is its kind of its connection with the original film. Yeah. And I love that that's kind of, you know, there are so many little moments throughout the entire film that are that are kind of almost like waving in a friendly way to the original. Yes. With yeah. those conversations that you guys, you know, had as a you know collaborators right from the start about what, what Joe and Tom and, and, and all that yeah. kind of wanted with it. I was on the film from the beginning and Cecile joined a little bit later when we were more in post-production. But the conversation we all had was you know everyone is fond of the original film and all the fans of the original film will appreciate our uh, our nods to it but the movie has to work on its own first and foremost tom is always very very um, specific about that he doesn't want you to have to be remembering another movie while you're in this movie and so interestingly one example where we manufactured a moment for Maverick, where we where we reminded the audience specifically of what he was thinking, was obviously in the bar scene when Rooster is playing Great Balls of Fire. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much love drives a man insane. You broke my will, but what a thrill! Goodness gracious, Great Balls of Fire! I laughed at love because I thought it was funny, but you came along and you moved me, honey. I changed my mind. And we show the images of Goose from Top Gun 1986. And it's very powerful for anyone who remembers that, that the kind of emotional intensity of that from the original film. You're, you're taken straight back there. And originally, we didn't have those flashbacks, you know, so we were trying to make the sequence work without it and just to try and see the emotion on Maverick's face. But it became clear that with those flashbacks, the scene was like much more powerful. And I remember the first time we kind of got it working 
I what I sat back and we all watched it and we were like, okay, that's awesome. <laughs> this really, <laughs> really works. And in fact, the the cue that's playing there is this kind of quite simple. It's this kind of string melody. You can talk more about this, Cecile, but it's this quite simple kind of two note string. It kind of goes da da da. This string melody, which is everything, is evolved from the Top Gun anthem them and from lady gaga's hold my hand the whole score is evolved from those themes but the simplicity of that kind of introspective mav which we use um you know at several points in the movie for example at the end of the scene with cyclone when he's saying you know you fly this mission or you don't fly for top gun ever you don't fly for the navy ever again you know and we we transition into the bar it's kind of in there we use it again after um, Hangman and Rooster have the argument and Maverick says, you're all dismissed. And then he gets the text message and has to go and visit Iceman. And so so that, that kind of introspective Maverick theme is used at several points in the film. We also use, as a direct callback musically to the original film, Harold Faltermeyer wrote a piece called Memories, you know, that's it. And that that's also obviously evolved because the first three notes are from the Top Gun anthem. Mm-hmm. And we use it on French horns. Is that right, Cecile? We use it on French horns yeah. um, on the way into Iceman's study right. on the black yeah. and white photograph. And then we use it at the end of Iceman's study when Mav and Ice are hugging. And so that's a kind of direct musical callback.
and in fact, during the during Iceman's funeral, spoiler, there is a um, a direct. <laughs> there's a piece of music that is directly lifted from the first movie, yes. which is a very straightforward kind of synth bed, and we have taps playing over the top of it, which was actually I think recorded live, like the guy yeah. playing it. Yeah. In the film, you know, they were able to mic him so that we could record his performance of Taps. And that's what you hear wow. actually in the score, which is great. And so we I did actually that. use some of the original, but it's it's very subtle there. But I remember building that right at the first the first version of that scene. I, I tried that out as an experiment and it just kind of stuck all the way through. And everyone seemed to like the simplicity of it. We're not trying too hard. It's just this synth bed with Taps played those are the callbacks and then of course danger zone which yeah. is you know everyone wants to hear danger zone. was always going to be there because you know i guess that the you know i i, I guess there was probably a moment where it's like we can't do that but then of yeah. course you can and it's like and it absolutely works it's like that's true and it's it's so interesting because tom was like we have to give them this you know, we we were so aware and Cecile and I were involved in these conversations all the time. Everybody's got their arms folded at the start of Top Gun Maverick before <laughs> people knew what it was. But everyone sat there, you know, basically going, this is going to suck. Don't screw it up. Why are you trying to make a sequel to this film? It's never going to work. And And we have to get everyone to uncross their arms within, you know, two minutes. We're holding the audience in the palm of our hand and we're going, we love this as much as you. We care about it and we want you to have the same experience. And do you remember the world of Top Gun that you loved? And we're not going to mess with it and we're just going to give you what you want. And so after two minutes, when Danger Zone kicks in, you're like, you're, you're starting to kind of relax and go, OK, clearly the people making this film do care about my experience in the theatre. Another story about Danger Zone is originally we tried it on the final dogfight between Maverick and Rooster in the F-14 and the Su-57s, you know, the enemy jets, yeah. fifth gen fighters. And we tried it. And when it kicks in, it was great fun, you know, to see Maverick kind of kick an ass in his F-14 and shooting down these planes. And But it removed the sense of danger and the fact that, you know, Maverick and Rooster could be in real trouble here. Yeah. And so... We it lived on the film for a few weeks, and then it became apparent that that wasn't the right way to go for that climactic battle in the third act, which had to have much greater emotional stakes, and you had to yeah. feel that, you know, musically. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about kind of the the prospect of of working on something like this to see you and 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 kind of how it started for you with, you know, where did the your role on this film start? I mean, in terms of where you're coming from and how do you approach that, 
the fact that we were working from source material that was already so well known, as Eddie said, is basically trying to make sure that you're paying uh, the right homage to what came before it. And I think in terms of the spotting, that's where that's where it came it, it came together so beautifully in terms of opening with the bells that everybody knows. And I thought what was really great is that we didn't just use what was exactly in the original movie. It's not the exact soundtrack. Hans and uh, his team, they reprogrammed the actual cue, but in, to such a, an exact degree that you, could, you couldn't quite tell the difference. But it was still it was a slight update and it still went a little bit further than it originally did, which I thought was quite clever because it wasn't quite a copy, but it was paying its homage and also just updating it in a sense for, for it to feel fresh. That the back and forth between uh, staying in in sort of the era of the 80s, but also well, late 80s, uh, and also updating it to our current current era. And I think one of the things about the the bar scene, which I thought was quite interesting, is most of the songs that are used in that in that scene are not particularly brand new songs. But then you put that against the beach scene, which is a completely new song yeah. that never. Been and nobody had heard before the, the the movie came out and i thought the back and forth between old and well oldish and and new made it work with the nostalgia and also just give you something new to enjoy i thought that was just um a great play each time remembering when are we quoting the original theme and when are we just going into something quite different which is for example something that the the cute the dark star does so well where um, you've got quotes, just the three notes of the opening uh, main theme of the Top Gun theme, the da da da, uh, <laughs> just those three notes, just that's an instant reminder that you're watching Top Gun and you're watching Tom Cruise being maverick and just being absolutely ama amazing. It's really exciting. But all around that, you've got this brand new uh, piece of music and the harmonies have been changed to an extent where you're feeling the excitement of the quote and then it sort of goes back into this other piece of music and I think that's just the back and forth is just very very well done.
that combination of, that the film does of using score both new and old, but then also the needle drops in it is just done so brilliantly. And I think there's something about a, a jukebox in that you you don't want to hear anything new from a jukebox. Weirdly, I think yeah, that's music so true, that, Edith. Music that comes out of a jukebox has got to have history to it. It's exactly. got to have. Yeah, I don't know. I, that was just something I was thinking about when I was I was kind of watching it again. It was kind of like. You know, you don't want to put that on and hear some kind of like drum and bass or something or kind of EDM. Yeah, exactly. you, you want it, it's got to be, I don't know, it's got to be nostalgic. It's got to be old. And then yeah. there's that brilliant scene where, you know, in terms of like the way that the film really sort of kind of almost dances with music and the way that you read, you know, the editing, Eddie, and sort of that Who track, won't get oh, filled, yeah. you know, it's like, let's turn and burn and then you're straight in kind of thing. And it's like, the choices are just so great. And and it's like a dance in the air as well, you know, the way that it's all kind of the fluidity of it's beautiful. It, it, it's so interesting that the we can talk about won't get fooled again because, okay, here's one of the reasons that we ended up picking that song is because there's a lot of chat from Maverick setting up the stakes of the dog fight, yeah. right? So he does like 50 seconds of, you know, good morning aviators and here we are and these are the rules, <laughs> the hard deck is this and all this and I'm going to shoot you down and 200 push-ups and whatever. And so we we looked at songs that had like really long intros. And of course, <laughs> Won't Get Fooled Again has one of the greatest long intros of any song ever in history. <laughs> and when we originally tried it, it did work. But the scene was like about, I'm going to say eight minutes long. And the track is four and a half minutes. And it was too long. And we, we had to try and use two tracks. Oh, it just, it, it felt like there was a gear change and... You know, deep down, I was like, we can only really afford to have one needle drop at this point in the movie. But yeah. the scenes were too long. And it's because there's so much great stuff. And we want to try and make sure that we give everything a day in court visually, you know, in terms of, you know, aerial dogfights and, and character interaction. We want to and they filmed a lot of stuff that is not in the movie, obviously, because that's just what happens when, you, when you're in the air. You don't know what you're going to get. And you just film all kinds of stuff and see. And, and so... I would grade the shots like seven out of 10, eight out of 10, nine out of 10, 10 out of 10. And what ended up happening with Won't Get Fooled Again is we tried, we had a track from the Rolling Stones in there. We tried quite a few different tracks. Yeah, we even tried um, brand new tracks that were written specifically, potentially, but it just, it just wasn't. Yeah, it, it, it just didn't, you know, because Mavericks, the, here, well, here's the new boss, same as the old boss, you know, that it, that's Maverick, okay? Yeah. And so... There was a point where right at the end and after I'd been working on the movie for nearly two years. Right. And, and editing the dogfight, you know, that first training, we called it the, the BFM, the basic flight maneuvers scene. And in the last week of the final mix, tell me if I'm wrong, Cecile, but it felt like it was like a Tuesday morning and we were watching <laughs> Reel 3, which is the, the reel with that. And Tom was in the room with us and it, because it, we were mixing with strict social distancing rules, we were only allowed seven people in the mixing room. Was it five? I can't remember. It was a very small number very of people. Very small, yeah. But Tom was there and, and I was there. Cecile was there. The mixers were there. And Jerry Bruckheimer and Joe Kaczynski were always like monitoring remotely from LA. And we were in London because of social distancing. People couldn't travel. And Tom looked at us and he's like, this isn't working, is it? And reluctantly, we all nodded and we were like, no, it's not working. And, and we've got three days left to finish the film, Edith, right? It's right at the end. <laughs> and so I was like, OK, I'll take another look at it, Tom. And he's like, yeah, let's just go in and like do one more pass where we really crunch this down. And so I compressed the timeline and 
basically all the nine out of 10 shots just popped out and I left all the 10 out of 10 shots in. So just the very, very best shots of jet action. And, and it required basically shredding the timeline and, you know, cutting all the dialogue and reconceiving it and moving stuff around. So there was a feverish like six hours where I was doing this on the Tuesday afternoon. And then someone said, I can't remember who it was, or maybe it was me, but or maybe it was you, Cecile. You said, you know, we should try won't get fooled again because now the scene is less than four minutes long. It's like two minutes and 58 seconds or something, you know, or three minutes, whatever it is now. And of course, then we've got like a minute of bits of song that we can then cut around and make it work. And so I put it on and I was like, okay, this is really going to work. And then I I was quite tired. We were all exhausted to be going <laughs> flat out. Cecile was literally next door to me. And I said, hey, Cecile, would you mind taking a crack at this and, and cutting up? Because we really wanted to get Roger Daltrey's scream, which comes at the end of the track to come right near the beginning when Maverick bursts through the jets which is an iconic moment of rock recording, right? Yeah. And, and so, so Cecile took the track and wor- you worked on it for probably another three hours. Well, it was quite... Yeah, I think something like that. Like, like, I turned over the scene to you at like 5 p.m. And then by 7 or 8 p.m. you had like, I've got a version, let's all watch this. And so, so I'll tell, let you tell the rest of the story, Cecile. Well, just basically what, what happened is that... The advantage is that we had been working on that sequence for quite a while. So I was familiar with what we really needed to underline and what really needed to be said through the song. Always having in the back of my mind that I I don't want to mess up a Who song that everybody knows and loves. So (laughs) first you have to think about, I don't want to start making music edits that are just terrible and people are going to be really upset. Uh, But at the same time, you sort of take the song and the the advantage of that song is that it's written in such a, it's not a very conventional uh, song in terms of structure. And you've got this really great intro with with just the the keyboard. And uh, so I just basically tried and identified the the bits of the song that seem to relate to each um, section of the sequence and just put that all together. And then what was really brilliant about being able to work directly with Eddie so closely is there were a couple bits that just didn't quite land right on the right frame. Yeah, yeah. So then I went back to see Eddie and I said, could you potentially just cut a few frames here and then a few frames there and then we'll be just right on it. And he yeah. did, which was just brilliant because you oh, you don't want to do that all the time. That's not something you do usually because when he got the right pace, you'd want to stick to that pace. But then it would work so much better if it did land like that. And so he did that and then we presented it and it was it was just a great success. And it was really, really quite brilliant. And, and, so yeah. it, and then, the, then the sound team, of course, have to reconform all the sound, which they've lovingly created. And I've shredded the timeline. There's like 100 edits in this thing. So they then feverishly work all day on Wednesday to to heal everything up and make it work. And then on Thursday, we go back in and we remix that reel. On Thursday afternoon, everyone says, it's working, that's done, we approve it. And then on Friday, we print mastered the movie and out it went. So it was right down to the wire. Oh my God! I know, but but we, we all felt it. And it was, what's interesting, Edith, is, you know, I've seen Top Gun 700 times, you know, because I worked on it for two years. Some days I'm watching the movie three times a day because we're that's just the nature of what we do and there was that point when it when it wasn't quite working we were always a little bit embarrassed by that point in the film we were always kind of like 
uh, you know, let's get to the bit where, where Maverick and Rooster do the dive bomb, the spinning dive, because we had great score for that bit. And then when we, when Tom looked at us and said, this isn't working, and we just put in that extra little eight or nine hours worth of work, the other side of that, we were like, this is one of the best bits of the movie now. And we're all super proud of it. And it changed from kind of like a six out of 10 scene to a 10 out of 10 scene in two days. And, and actually the rest of the movie was working so well. And it was the one bit where we were all like, this isn't as brilliant. It's just okay. But that little push, which is when you're working with a great producer and a director in Joe and Jerry Bruckheimer, obviously as well, and Tom Cruise, who they're always going, can we just plus it? Joe would say, can we plus this? Can we hmm. beat it? And then that little extra push at the end just nudged it up into this is awesome and will become a classic sequence now. So it was so exciting. We'll be fighting in the streets With our children at our feet In the morrows that they worship We'll be gone And the men who spurred us on Sit in judgment of all wrong They decide and the shotgun sings the song I'll back to some of these classic tracks on the jukebox in the original top gun we had dock of the bay remember otis redding yeah. and so we used tramp by otis redding and carla thomas when when rooster walks into the bar as a kind of little nod to the fact that that kind of music was in the original movie as well tramp what you call me tramp well, you, did. you don't wear continental clothes or stetson hats I'll tell you one doggone thing. It makes me feel good to know one thing. I know I'm a Something that Stephen Mirioni, who was one of the other editors who came on to help for a few months when I was just overwhelmed, he put Tramp on and it stuck mm. all the way through. Whereas all the other mm. tracks, you know, the, the David Bowie Let's Dance, Get It On by T-Rex, you know, Slow Ride by Foghat, they all changed. And we tried 50, 60 tracks for each one of those. Actually, yeah. Foghat, for the, for the nerds and the fans of like film lore out there, we originally had Sweet Home Alabama which also yes. suited Hangman, but it was a little tired. And, and you know, it's a great track, but it, it didn't quite...
quite have that kind of, oh, th- this is perfect. And yet it's a classic track and I haven't heard this for a while. And why, wh- wh- how did they find this from the archive? You know, it's one of those where you just enjoy it because you're, you remember it, but you're like, I'd forgotten that. And it's awesome, you know. And that was a suggestion by Edgar Wright. Because we would, yeah, yeah, Edgar. Aww. And so Chris McQuarrie, who's the writer and the producer, is good friends with Edgar and emailed him and just said, look, we're struggling to find the track for Hangman in the bar. And Edgar had come to a friends and family screening. So he had seen the film, right? And then he came up with like 10 tracks, one of which was Slow Ride by Foghat. And we put it on and it was perfect because he's talking about Rooster going slow. And so it was so perfect. Yeah, and that's that's kind of how we ended up with the, you know, all those tracks in the bar. the make this shit I mean I hope someone was filming all this because there's a kind of I don't know there's a there's a, a high stakes drama behind the scenes of kind of like the making of of not yeah. just this I imagine with a lot of films in terms of like you know how how much work goes into it and how things can sometimes be to the last minute and but Cecile earlier on you mentioned you know Gaga and she she provided this this song that for Hans kind of really just I guess he kind of saw the the, the strength of of the the construction of that song to provide lots of opportunities for 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 cues and pieces of music throughout the film. Do you mind talking a little bit ab- yeah, about it's, that? It's actually quite incredible how the song became such an inherent part of the score, and I mean, essentially became the love theme, and also beyond that became Maverick's. His, the emotional bed of of what he was going through, be it with Rooster or uh, with Penny. And even when we talk about uh, the love of flight, that was something that we talked a lot about. Even that is also inspired by Hold My Hand. It influenced uh, a lot of the more emotional, reflective cues in the score. And that, w- that was pretty incredible in the, in the way that you could always get more out of it. Um, just by playing just the, the harmonies, not even the, the melody, would just hint at what the overall emotional arc of the film was. I loved it because we were we were struggling in Dark Star to 
underscore the moment where he takes a beat to look at the sunrise and he says, talk to me, Goose. And we couldn't get that to work for a long time because we've had the synth driven kind of action dark star cue, which I love, which, you know, for me, resurrected in some form when they're stealing the F-14 at the end, which is probably one of my favorite cues ever (laughs) written that I've worked on on a movie. One of the restructuring ideas that we did editorially was after the very opening montage of Danger Zone, what happens now in the film is we fade to black and we fade up on Maverick in his hangar, right? You know, doing his morning routine, having his coffee and then going off to do the the Mark 10 flight. And originally, the original structure of the movie, we cut from the the activity on the deck and we cut underneath to the bottom of the, the big elevator, which lifts the jet up. And we see Maverick in an introspective mood standing there. And he says, talk to me, Goose. He's looking at the ocean. He says, talk to me, Goose. And you come to realize as you watch the movie that all that activity on the jet is actually the activity that's happening at the beginning of the third act. Hmm. And you know, in the third act, when Maverick has stood there and Warlock comes up and he says, you're where you belong. And you realize that you've come full circle back to that moment. But it took the film down emotionally to a kind of introspective place where we didn't want to be straight after danger zone even though it, that is a kind of classic structure of meeting the protagonist at the end of the second act and then flashing back to the start of the movie and catching up with where they end up at the end and then you let the third act of the movie play out you know lots of movies use that structure but we we had him saying talk to me goose there so we did not have him saying talk to me goose in dark star because it would have been too close but when we removed that moment of Maverick under, you know, by the by the elevator and we just fade to black and we meet Maverick in the hangar, then we had a space for him to say, talk to me, Goose, in Dark Star. And then we had this idea of love of aviation. And when we discovered, I remember when when Hans first played us, Hold My Hand, it was a very transcendent moment for the whole team. Jerry Bruckheimer had heard it and loved it. And, and so myself and Tom Cruise and... I think Chris McQuarrie was there. Were you there, Cecile, that day? I don't, I'm not no. sure if you were. Uh, maybe no. Lorne was even there. But we went to Hans Zimmer's studio in London and he played us the song and we were all speechless because it was so good. And every everyone was just like, this is a slam dunk. It's amazing. It's amazing. And then Hans was like, but we can do something with the chord progression here and we can use piano and we can use synth and we can make it the emotional heart of the film. It's so when we play it over Dark Star, it's perfect. He says, talk to me, Goose. He's watching the sunrise. But the, the cue builds to a kind of unresolved climax, which is effectively hinting that the Dark Star uh, flight experiment is not going to end well, you know. Mm. And then we use it again during the sailing, I think. Is that right? Yeah, we use it during the sailing and we use it 
when Maverick comes to the bar in his whites and he says goodbye to Penny, and we swell to the to the shot of the the um, the yeah, bow yeah. of the carrier smashing through the sea, and we have that wonderful moment where he says, "You know, you're where you belong." And then, but again, we never let it really soar and resolve properly. You know, it's building and building, but each time we use it, it gets slightly bigger. And then, of course, mm-hmm. right at the end of the movie, we always had the Top Gun anthem playing on the celebrations on the deck. You know, after Maverick and Rooster crash land, and and everyone is celebrating that they're back safely. The in the original Top Gun, that's what they did. They used the Top Gun anthem, and that was there for a long time. And in the end, what we did is we used the Top Gun anthem for the bit where Maverick kind of buzzes the carrier, you know, which is a direct nod, obviously, to the first movie. And it's a celebration of the fact that that Rooster and Maverick have survived and they've got through this, you know, after Hangman saves them. Then when once the celebrations start, we go to a full-blown, massively, wonderfully orchestral version of the Hold My Hand kind of love of aviation cue. And then we allow it to kind of go to 11, you know, which it has not done up to that point in the movie. So if you listen to the celebrations, you'll hear how we did it. And then, of course, the song comes in at the end when Maverick and Penny are in the in the plane at the end, you know, flying together. It really was the emotional heart of the film. Like we play it on piano, I think, when Maverick, you know, when when they have the love scene, you know, when Maverick and Penny finally kiss and then they have the talk about her daughter and Rooster when they're lying in bed together, we use it there. So it's it was just like a, a magic bullet to solve <laughs> a lot of problems. It, it just, it kind of bound the entire film together, you know, and, and unlocked this wonderful bounty of like answers for the movie you know and so we're we're forever in debt to lady gaga for writing the song because she saw the film and wrote the song for us hold my hand everything will be okay i heard from the heavens that clouds have been gray pull me close wrap me in your aching arms i see that you're hurting why'd you take so long to tell me you need me i see that you're bleeding you don't need to show me
kind of sort of um, that kind of almost like creative passing the baton type thing as well. You know, you you kind of ask her to watch the film, she watches it, and this is her kind of her response. Yeah. You know, wonderful that, isn't it? How kind of art can inspire art. A hundred percent. Yeah, and and it's the same with uh, when we we were str- Do you remember Cecile? We were struggling with the the beach football. You know, what were we going to yeah. use? We had playing with the boys there forever because obviously. You know, that's so iconic and, and belongs in the other film. And we can't recycle Danger Zone and playing with the boys. It was one step too much. But we couldn't find a track for that. Were you there? So so do you want to tell the story of how Ryan Tedder no, got that involved? Was, that was before my time. I think that was um, Peter Miles was uh, was another music editor who worked on that. I was uh, That was back in L.A. before. You, OK, OK, uh, I London. see. So we were really struggling and one of the producers suggested that we we ask Ryan Tedder to look at the film. Now, if you Google him, Ryan Tedder has written a gigantic number of hit songs. And he, he came in on Zoom and we all we showed him the scene and he he said, OK, I get what you're after. I love Top Gun. I'd be I'd be thrilled to do this. So he he is one of the band members of One Republic. Yeah. And he so he was you know in his studio at home. And the next day. Right. He sent like five ideas through and the ideas were just riffs. Right. So they were like 15 seconds of a potential riff for a song. Mm -hmm. Not not a whole song, just 15 seconds. But and the moment we heard the whistling. Right. Yeah. And the and the groove and the beat that was this kind of bouncy, fun rhythm. Tom Cruise heard it and he was like, that is perfect. That is absolutely the vibe that we're after. Jerry Bruckheimer, we're all on the call. Joe Kaczynski, it was like, that's the one. There was two, but that was that was that was the front runner. Okay. And so we said to Ryan, would you take a look at this and come back? And he he kind of expanded on both of them, I think. But in the end, it was clear that that was the one. And he wrote enough of the song for the movie. So he only wrote like I don't know, a minute and 50 seconds oh, or wow. whatever. So so they record and the band recorded it like two days later. And so five days later, we had the song in the film. I mean, it was incredibly fast. The guy is a proper genius. I, it might have been like six days or seven days, but it was very, very quick. And it was like another bolt from the heavens of, of a musical <laughs> genius coming in and just solving this dilemma, which had plagued us for months because we couldn't figure out a track that worked perfectly with the vibe. thing is two years later paramount called him and said we're doing a soundtrack album can you please finish the rest of the song so and again he like called the band and was like quick guys we've got to record another verse and a you know a, a you know middle eight and all the stuff that we need to do to finish the track and again they did it in like a week and then of course the songs had a billion plays on spotify <laughs> and is a gigantic hit for them so i'm so thrilled and yeah. but ryan tedder he's very humble but a genius and really worked his magic for us on that it was such a pleasure I, I loved when you were talking just earlier there uh is about that that relationship between the two of you you know in terms of that you see when you were saying 
you know, and is there any way that we can kind of take out, <laughs> a, you know, a frame sort of thing? Because, you know, in this film, you know, we've talked about mission before, but with this film in terms of those aerial scenes, you know, and there are quite a few yeah. of them in, in this film sort of thing as well. And they've got, some of them have got different tones to them. And I think as well, that's a great thing about this film is the tone of it. You know, have those, you have those light moments every now and again, even yeah, when yes. they, even when they have that, the, the kind of crash landing, you know, in enemy territory and stuff, there's just, there's still a moment where they have this, brilliant kind of banter that just yeah. allows you as an audience to kind of have a little giggle and then we're, yes. we're back into it. It's so clever. But in terms of those scenes, you know, and when you're, when you first see that footage as well, and you kind of go, holy shit, the, what they've been able to do in this film as well, in terms of getting all these actors to actually fly and, you know, yeah. kind of to be in the, it's so, I think it's another reason why the film just connects so well, because you're in that cockpit and you can see that they're doing this stuff and you can see that it's, and that must be a constant sort of, kind of relationship with the two of you in terms of that side of things as well in terms of these particular scenes because they've got to have a certain energy they've got to have a certain tone they've got to sit within the parameters of the film and drive story or you know character as well I'll just quickly throw something from my point of view and, and then let Cecile talk about how we ended up you know scoring these aerial sequences but the real challenging thing when you're mixing sound for a film which you may not think about as an audience, is you have to hear the dialogue. That is so important. And in these aerial sequences, the characters are narrating the story of the aerial sequence just enough so that you understand what's going on. Because sometimes the the exterior shots of the jets could be potentially confusing if, you know, they're, they're not saying I'm banking left or... or uh, Rooster, Rooster says, you know, payback, how are you doing? And payback says, I'm right behind you. And then you cut to a shot of the two jets and then you know that Rooster's in front and payback's behind. And we really took time in the mix to figure out, you know, where we would be with music and dialogue and sound effects in these aerial sequences. And sometimes we scored a scene and then removed the score because we needed it to have more power later. But I'd like Cecile to, to kind of summarise where we ended up and how we scored the the aerial sequences because it was a challenge really a challenge yeah for for sure it was one of the bigger challenges and one of the things that we spent quite a bit of time experimenting with because you can when you um see the scene where mav does the whole run by himself to show that it's doable yeah uh, we experimented quite a bit with the score because you actually get quite small pockets where you have room for the music to speak but the rest of the time you just really want to be in the plane with maverick you don't want to really be too you're not trying to underscore what he's doing you just want to see it and witness it and feel like you're there with him because you it's so gripping on screen but at the same time if you actually just cut the music out entirely there it would feel like there would be a bit of a hole so in actuality, we'll just have a bed of, of rhythm that's just running underneath all the time. Just something really, a pulse that's just running underneath really fast. And then as as soon as there's room, the music starts soaring with more elements. And just little quotes just to that keep growing each time we cut back to the team, just witnessing this this feat that he's doing. And then once once he gets all, all the way to the top, you, the, the the sound sort of fades away just a little bit just to for, for the music to soar and really make you feel like he's a he has achieved it and he's made it. And that's really all the back and forth that's that's happening all the time. There's it's the same thing uh towards the end 
for a while there was music all the way while they were starting the mission fr from the moment they left the carrier all the way to when they uh, achieved the mission and got and destroyed the the plant and in the end we ended up with no music for most of it because it was so much more gripping it was so much more intense and you felt really the, the pressure that they were under and you only have a bit of music when when Rooster is sort of internalizing his, uh, trying to internalize what he has to do when Mav is just trying to tell him to just go for it. And and then just a little bit of music when it's needed. But at the end of the day, it really only starts once once they've achieved it and then they go up and then suddenly they're being attacked. And I remember on the on the mix stage, it was there was a moment where Tom said, this is, this is just too overwhelming sonically. There's too much, it's too loud. You're not, feeling it. You're not getting the emotion of the weight of what they're getting into because they're just being shot out from everywhere. And it's not landing and you just feel overwhelmed by all the sound because it, it is a loud moment. You've got all these plane sounds and all the shooting and all that stuff. So basically we just went back and there was a true play between the sound effects, the dialogue, and then the music, and then when for when the sound effects of the of the guns and the planes needed to come back just a touch for the music to really feel like it's soaring, and then the music comes back down to make room for the guns, and then and then you have to make room obviously for the line of dialogue just to feel everything. It's a real dance between e each department, as you will, uh, um, in terms of just. Uh, making it land emotionally so that you also f you feel like you're there with them and you're hearing everything they're hearing but also you're feeling what they're feeling at that moment always feel like with these conversations that you want to leave the audience wanting more and you know after this second Top Gun we definitely want more but I hope that if nothing else from people enjoying this conversation as much as I have that they go and watch the film again as well because yeah I'm never tired of watching it and I've watched it a lot it's so great 
So next time you watch it, I'm going to give you a tiny. Okay. Okay. Here we go. So this is like a really tiny little editorial detail, which when you watch it, you'll be like, why have I never seen this before? So after the beach football, I ain't worried about it song. The, The music kind of swells as Maverick and Penny ride home on the motorbike. Okay. And then they get home. And she leaves the door open, right? There's that yeah. moment where she leaves the door open, okay? So what she's wearing at the beach football game, when she's in the bar and she's looking over at them playing football, she's wearing a green shirt, okay? And then on the motorbike, she's suddenly in a blue jumper. And then when she gets dropped home, she's back in the green shirt again, okay? And no one notices because you're in the emotion of the moment because the music is holding your hand through that whole thing. And and so her clothing completely changes and no one no one notices because you don't look for that stuff. Right? Yeah. You're just feeling the emotion of the fact that Maverick's driving her home and he, she puts her head on his back, if you remember. She kind of hugs him and they have this kind of moment of connection as the sun is setting and he's arrived, driving home. It's, it's really romantic and very powerful. And the reason she's got a blue jumper on is because that was originally after the sailing scene. Originally, we had it there whereby... They go sailing and that's what her sailing outfit is. And she had white jeans on the motorbike. And we used basically a very skilled artist <laughs> to turn her jeans blue. To paint her jeans. To make <laughs> her jeans blue from white. So when, when you see them riding on the motorbike after the football game, that's lifted from earlier in the movie where it was too soon for her to be being to be intimate with him. Yeah. And we wanted to build to that moment where she opens the door, you know, and, and, he's, and he's like, okay, we're, we're finally going to consummate this relationship after all this dance that we've been doing for years and years. And so anyway, next time, it's very subtle because it's quite dark. It's a sunset, so you can't really see, but green shirt, blue jumper, green shirt. And so that's for everyone who wants to go and look at that moment. That's um... one of the things that you end up doing when you're editing a movie because you're like, <laughs> people won't really notice, but it's emotionally correct. And the most important thing that you consider when you're editing a movie is emotion first and foremost. Yeah. Like, so there we go. There's a little Easter egg for I'm just insider off knowledge. To, uh, to go and watch the film again. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, thank you so much for, for chatting to me again. And I look forward to what's going to be our hat trick, um, whatever that's going to be in the future, uh, whether right. that be together or, or separately. But thank you so, so, so much, Eddie and Cecile, thank for your you. time once again. It's always an absolute treat. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much.
the score to Top Gun Maverick, that is the Top Gun Anthem, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Eddie Hamilton and Cecile Tournesac. My huge thanks to Eddie and Cecile, not just for taking the time to talk to me out of their very busy schedules, but also just their enthusiasm is absolutely infectious. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I did recording that conversation and if that conversation doesn't inspire you to watch the film again I don't know what will if you'd like to hear my previous chat with Eddie and Cecile about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning then head to edithbowman.com You'll also be able to find my chat with Jenny Bruckheimer and Joe Krasinski about uh, Top Gun Maverick. And you can also listen back to Lorne and Chris McQuarrie talking about the previous Mission Impossible film. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And there are also exclusives to be watched on our YouTube channel too. So make sure you subscribe to that as and when you get the chance. Already up there as an exclusive for YouTube is Dan Dillow and Kevin Wright talking about the second series of Loki. And then also next week, we are going to pop up a YouTube exclusive with Tom Rimney talking about his fantastic Sly documentary that is available on Netflix uh, as of today, in fact. So Tom Rimney talking about the Sly doc uh, will be up on YouTube, I think by Monday the latest. So it gives you the weekend to watch that Sly documentary. Uh, Join us next week uh, for another episode of Soundtracking on Monday where we have, I mean, we are spoiled for new releases, to be honest, uh, this weekend. I mentioned the Tom Rimney doc that is out tomorrow on Netflix. Out in cinemas tomorrow are two fantastic films directed by two fantastic ladies. Kitty Green, who you might remember we had on the pod previously talking about her great film The Assistant, is back with uh, Julia Garner back in the lead role, but this time with a film called The Royal Hotel. It's about two American backpackers in Australia who end up in the middle of nowhere at this crazy hotel and, well, you'll need to watch the film to find out more. The other film that you might have heard us talk about with Charlotte Regan when we were talking about her film Scrapper was How to Have Sex because that film has been uh, directed by Molly Manning Walker who was the DOP on Scrapper for Charlotte. How to Have Sex is an extraordinary film and we're lucky that we have Molly and her composer James Jacob joining us next week as well as Kitty so on Monday's episode we'll be talking how to have sex and the Royal Hotel I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then